You're listening to audio from Journey Bible Church. Join us every week for sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you would like to connect with us, head to journeybible.org connect. morning. If you're a guest here at Journey, my name's uh, Mike Bickley, and I'm grateful you're here. I I serve Jesus here at Journey Bible Church along an incredible group of staff and leaders in our church. And our our mission as a church is to help people find Jesus and then passionately follow Jesus with reckless abandon all the days of their lives. We want people to learn how to live out his will and his ways as he's communicated them in the Bible. And, uh, and so that's really uh, why we as a church uh, exist. That's our passion, to do it here locally and around the world. Now, in Sunday mornings, as you can see, we're working through the Gospel of John, which was written by one of Jesus' disciples named John. And this Gospel can kind of be outlined as a play, is kind of how we've done it. There's an introduction, or you might call it a, a prologue, And that's something we went through a few weeks ago, which really unpacked uh, Jesus as the living word who has brought light and truth into the world. And then there's an epilogue, there's a conclusion. And when we get there, you'll see that that, uh, we are supposed to continue faithfully following Jesus until he returns. And that's the focus of our mission after he ascends into heaven And then the rest of the book is kind of broken into two acts. Act one are the signs of Jesus, and we're going to begin working through the first sign this morning. Those are the things that convey who he is and what he's done. And then probably his most majestic sign, uh, the most uh, manifestation of his glory, comes in chapters 13 um, through the end of the book where Jesus' hour has come. And we'll talk about that this morning where he has come purposefully uh, to die on a cross and to resurrect from the grave. And so his passion or his glory is manifest in the greatest of his miracles. Now, the section we're in, in John chapter 2 this morning, is day 7 of one week. Uh, And as we've been working through John um, and the narrative portion that began in verse 19 with John the Baptist, we kind of seen a chain reaction of faith. John the Baptist sees Jesus, identifies him as the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, and and then he sees two of his disciples the next day, and he points it out. And there's an unnamed disciple, which is probably John. That's the way he he, he tends to non-identify himself in the gospel. And and then there's, there's Andrew. And so Andrew goes and and follows with John, Jesus, and, and, and then he discovers he's the Messiah, and then he goes and gets Simon Peter, and then Simon Peter goes and gets Philip, and then Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. So we see from John the Baptist to Andrew to Peter to Philip to Nathaniel, this chain reaction of people telling their friends and their relatives about Jesus the Messiah. And today we come to chapter 2, And Jesus' first sign, as it's designated in the text, at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. 
Now, John has structured his book around these signs. He will use the word sign 17 times in this book. Actually, in all of the Gospels, it's used 80 times. They refer to specific miracles of Jesus that help us understand his nature and his work. And so John organizes his gospel around seven of these. The first one in chapter 2 is turning water into wine. And what we see in these seven signs uh, are, are Jesus conveying who he is and why he, he came. But it's important to understand that a sign is, is more than just a miracle. As a matter of fact, not all signs in the Bible are miracles. Uh, for uh, one example would be Isaiah and some of the ways he was supposed to act out um, as an identification to the people um, what was wrong with them. And my least favorite of his signs was when he had to walk around naked to demonstrate to the people how barren they were, how shameful nakedness was in that culture was nothing compared to the shame of the nakedness of their souls. And so that was one of Isaiah's signs. And we see seven of them that we'll be working through here in the Gospel of John in, up through chapter 12. And interspersed in between these are teaching segments that will further unveil the truths of these signs. And what's beautiful about these signs is not just each one unveils something, but all of them packaged together collectively give us a robust picture of Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God. Now, signs, there's kind of three parts to an understanding of John's use of the word sign. First, there's a revelation. There's a, a manifestation, an opening up, an unveiling of Jesus, who he is and why he has come. So there's a revelation. And then second, that revelation compels a response. There's a desire that John has on how you will react, even as you read this gospel, to the signs that he unveils. So a, a response is elicited. And then lastly, there's a result. Depending on how you choose to respond to the sign, the revelation of Jesus that's given, it will have a direct consequence on the state of your soul and the manner of your life. And so he told us this at the end of the book. In John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So John isn't, isn't collecting and writing about every sign Jesus did. The ones he chooses are the ones that he feels compelled by the power of the Holy Spirit to put into writing to help convey a message. And what is that message? That message is that these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So the revelation that is happening in these signs is to point us to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Both of those, the Messiah and the Son of God, are Old Testament designations for the one who would come that would be Lord and Savior, that would be the King of Israel. So that's the revelation. And then, and then the response he's, he's looking for is that we may believe. 
that we would put our trust in, that we would surrender our lives to, the one who uh, comes, the Messiah, the King of Israel. In other words, we would invite him to rule and reign in our lives and in our hearts. And then a result that we would have life in his name. Life everlasting, eternally in the presence of God, but life vibrant and full right now. A life of satisfaction and contentment, of joy and abundance is the way that John will describe it in chapter 10. And so we have here the revelation, we have the response, and we have the result that God desires for us. And it's important for us to realize that having life in his name is if you and I choose to believe. If we choose not to believe, if we choose to ignore or reject Jesus, which many in this gospel will do, they will choose to turn away from Jesus. They will choose to ignore Jesus. When we choose life, you and I get the life and the truth and the light that comes with believing in Jesus. But when we choose to ignore or reject Jesus, we get the death and deception and darkness that comes with living in the world that's ruled and run by Satan. You know, um, imagine a world with no signs. Like you walked into, you drove into the parking lot here and you didn't know which entrance to go into. You walk in, you don't know where the auditorium is. Um, you know, we have some pretty good signs. It's been getting better. And, and the more signs you have, the easier it is to find your way around. Now, how many of you use your GPS regularly on your phone? Okay. How many of you can remember paper maps? Okay. Most, most everybody, there's a few of you that have been deprived of that wonderful time. But I remember as a young father with five young kids, one of the things we did for several summers is we went to a family camp out, out in Colorado. And there were kind of two rules of the trip. Number one, we would drive as hard and as fast and as long as we kid, could if the kids were getting along and we had enough diesel in our Ford excursion. We had the largest boat known to man. I called it my land yacht. Um, but you don't want to run a diesel dry. And so I, I was often, this was pre-GPS, like I'm often looking for signage that would help me know when my last opportunity to fill up would be. And I was looking for any sign that would say all night gas station. That was the miracle words. Like, then I knew whenever I showed up there, I could fill my car. Otherwise, if I wasn't seeing that sign, it, you know, and then after a couple of trips, we started marking down where they were. So we would know where they are. Imagine a world with no signs, with no GPS, with no directions. Imagine a soul left to itself with no spiritual directions how to clean out the shame and wash out the guilt with no directions on how to handle the pressures of life, how to deal with the anxieties and the depression and the, and the panic attacks. Imagine a world where there's no spiritual help. See, God didn't have a wicked sense of humor and create us and throw us into the world and leave us to ourselves. He has constantly been providing for us signs and directions so that our souls 
confined what they were created for. A world without spiritual signs would be a world of being lost, being confused, experiencing darkness. A world that discovers the signs that lead them to the destination of Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, find revelation and ultimately eternal life. So in John's gospel, the sign is not the destination. Jesus doesn't just do miracles. It's not spiritual bling. He wants to hang around his neck. Every one of his miracles is a sign. It's signifying a revelation about who he is and why he's come. It's, it's eliciting a response that you and I would choose to believe in him as the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Son of God. And as a result of that, our lives would be changed, radically changed. And so this morning, at the first sign we're going to look at, this is the main idea. So if you're taking notes, this would be a good thing to write down. The old is gone, the new has come. When Messiah arrives, he comes to fulfill the law and the prophets. And when he comes, the old is gone and the new has arrived. So we're going to work through this passage verse by verse, but before we do, let me pray for us. God, I, I pray now as we come to your word that it would unfold for us. It would bring fresh meaning to the lives and hearts of those that are here that are already following you. Lord, that it, it would be encouragement. It, it would bring resolution. It would bring inspiration, Lord. And more than that, it, it would lead to a daily and moment-by-moment -moment dependence upon you. And Lord, for the one in the room that uh, maybe a, a skeptic or maybe a seeker or maybe unconvinced, I pray that you would show yourself to them in a fresh way with fresh language that would draw them to you. God, now help your word to be made real and manifest Jesus for who he is and what he's done. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right. John chapter 2, follow along with me in your Bible if you have it. Um, otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we're getting some background here. The third day uh, means that after those five days, there were travel time. Uh, there's a, a, a disagreement on scholars because we don't know exactly when the first day was, and we get now to the seventh day. Th this could be a Sabbath. It may not be a Sabbath, probably, because uh, of the way that things are arranged, but we don't know. But it's the third day. So think after that day, you know, there's, there's another day, a fifth day, there's a travel day, and then they get to the seventh day. So that's the third, one, two, three. That's how they counted back there, including a portion of a day. And the mother of Jesus was at the wedding. Um, Galilee is, uh, you know, Cana is only uh, about four miles from Nazareth. It's the exact same area. It's, 
If you were to look at the groups of villages, it would be like when we talk, you know, about Grandview and, and Leewood and Overland Park and Olathe and DeSoto as you kind of move west and, and the interconnectedness of it. And so Cana was connected with Nazareth and they would have had a lot of overlap in relationships. And the mother of Jesus is there already, which it doesn't say she was invited. So there seems to be implied that her role, uh, maybe as a relative, was part of helping the family host the wedding. And it says Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, remember so far we've been introduced to five of, uh, of those disciples. The unnamed one, which was probably John. And then, and then you had Andrew, and you had Simon Peter, and, and you had Philip, and, and you had Nathaniel. And all five of these were, were from the same hometown, were related, and probably in some ways, and probably alongside Jesus, that's why they're invited to this wedding. They're not just distant individuals. They're probably people that were regularly involved with this family. Now, weddings were huge social events, um, especially among the Jews, and much more significant than our weddings today. Um, and a wedding lasted several days long, often a week long. The groom's family was responsible to provide all the food, all the wine uh, for the guests as they were invited and they came. And, and actually, it was elaborate, it was expensive, uh, it needed lots of planning. And the hospitality that was shown by the host family was actually an indicator of their social standing in the community. So if you threw a bad wedding, you had a bad name. Because the whole village and surrounding people would be invited. So imagine what it must have felt like when this is said, the wine ran out. That's not good. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. We would say they were up a creek without a paddle and no water. Actually, no wine, right? All right, so this is where we want to do the poll. How many of you took the poll? How many of you? All right, let's see the results, Jonathan. Can we see the results? Okay, so the first one um, was the, the question uh, about wh what, why was it a problem uh, when wine ran out? And um, most of you thought it was everyone would be thirsty or it was a party foul, and that's incorrect. Actually, you could get sued if you didn't provide enough wine. Um, in, the, in the shame culture in which they lived, um, there was an idea of reciprocity. So if you provided wine for a week at your wedding and you invited people and they provided wine for an hour, you could sue the groom and his family for their lack of hospitality. All right, next question. Yeah. Uh, the question, um, is, and this is a little bit further in the, so I'm not going to give you the correct answer now, but Jesus calls his uh, mom woman. If there are any sons out there, I would not suggest that. <laughs> Do not address your mom as woman. Okay, but Jesus did it. 
So was it a term of respect, he forgot her name, or it's what Joseph called her? I love that two of you think that's what Joseph called her. Hey, woman, come here, man. You guys, like, and I noticed very few of you wanted to answer this one. Either you couldn't find it, or you were scared to death of this. Like, maybe, like, uh, you know, your mom is sitting next to you, and she might find out what you think, okay? Actually, I'm going to give you the answer. Um, It was a term of respect. But there's a reason why Jesus didn't call his mom Mary mother in this text. Okay, let's go to the next one. Uh, The best wine first. In other words, how would you serve wine at a wedding? Uh, Best wine first, bad wine last, in small portions, bad wine first, best wine last. So typically, um, the best, the the way you would do it is you do the, the good wine first, and then after people's palates have been dulled um, with lots of food and lots of wine, um, uh, you might even say some of them might be inebriated, um, uh, then you would serve the lesser wine, the bad wine, next. Okay? Um, and yes, uh, small portions make them keep coming back uh, to get more, right? All right, so let's go back to our text. Verse 3, uh, when the wine ran out. Can we... Do we still have that up? There we go. When the wine ran out, they have no wine. They have no wine. Now, this is an important statement um, because uh, wines, wine and weddings carried a, a tremendous symbolic meaning. And so when, when she says they have no wine, it's more than a statement of panic by Mary. John is, is not just seeing the physical declaration of the state of the wedding celebration has been stalled out by the reality that they ran out of wine. John probably intends for us to see a spiritual declaration of the state of the Jewish people as they are about to meet their Messiah. They have no wine They've turned the law into some kind of religious set of regulations and duty, writing hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of things they should do in addition to the law to stay clean. And their souls were barren and their lives were frustrated. And they were full of judgmentalism and legalism. They had no wine. See, wine in Isaiah 25, Amos chapter 9, Jeremiah Jeremiah 31, Hosea, I think it's chapter 12, in a bunch of places in the Old Testament, wine overflowing, just abundantly flowing wine is symbolic of the gladness and the joy of the kingdom that Messiah would bring. So they have no wine. They have no joy. They have no satisfaction. They have no deep abiding relationship with the living God. They have legalism. They have regulations. They have rules. They have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, the term woman is a, is a term of respect, but it would not be the usual one that you would use with your mother. And, uh, and Jesus will use this here, and he'll use it on the cross. 
In both cases, at the cross, the hour has come, and, and here, the hour has not come. And so, at the cross and here, Jesus is using a term that signifies he's more than a son to her. He's the son of God. So he's using a term of respect for her, but in many ways, he's manifesting the reality that he's got bigger fish to fry than just help his mom. And he says, my hour has not come. The moment of my greatest glory is not here yet. That will come at the cross. John 17, when Jesus prays, he prays to the Father and he makes this declaration, my hour has now come. The complete fulfillment of why he came to glorify God and be glorified by God in his death and his resurrection. That hour is not here yet. And, and we don't know if Mary has thought through the symbolism of a wedding and how that relates to Messiah and the feast, the wedding feast, which is carried on in the New Testament, and the wine, the overflowing wine. We don't know if she understands all that. We know that Jesus is making a distinction. And then his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So whatever, whatever he was saying to her, she didn't take it as he's not going to do anything. Because she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Now, I think Jesus sees the perfect opportunity to act out a parable. So that's the way I would like for you guys to see what we're working through here. Is an acted out parable. A, a living manifestation of deeper meanings in something physically that's happening. So here's what Jesus says. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. So let's, let's just make sure that we really understand how big these jars were. They're stone. Stone uh, did not need to be destroyed. It could be when it's a, it was used for ceremonial water that would be used to pour over utensils or hands for people to wash, to be ceremonially clean when they were to eat. Um, it, it, the stone um, could just be scoured. If they were another kind uh, of of uh, pot, they would have to be broken or discarded. And so stone was the most durable and could be used again after being scoured. And, and how many of you know how big a 55-gallon drum is? Okay, so each of these is, is, is larger um, um, than half a drum, if you want to think of it that way. And so they're very large stone pots. And he says, Jesus says, fill the jars with water. Now, the Jews had all these regulations about washing and cleansing. And so the utensils used by people and the hands in which you uh, handled the utensils, all of that had to be ceremonially cleansed. So that's why there was so much of this water to be done. And, and Jesus says, fill the jars with water. Now, you and I would go get a hose. Okay? But that's not what they did then. They would have one source of water, which was the, the village well. And so they, would, they, were gonna, they, they, weren't gonna, they may have hauled these large stone water pots there and, and hauled them back. But he said, fill the jars with water. It says they filled them to the brim. You can't fill it to the brim and bring it back. 
Like it spills out. Can I have an amen? Right? So they've got to go. They're getting probably pitchers of water, and they're bringing it, pour it in. They go back to the well, and it says servants, plural, so there's many of them, maybe holding two. Many times you've seen they have jars on ropes, and they're doing that, and they're filling these. I mean, that's a lot of water. You know, we're, we're looking, at, looking at 180 gallons, you know, 120 gallons, somewhere in between there, and so it's, it's a lot of water, and they fill it to the brim. They top them off. They can't get any more water in there. Are you guys with me? Now, this is important because the symbolism here of the ceremonial water pots that signify all the rules and regulations of the old covenant of the law and all of the man-made drivel that was created to make sure that everybody did everything just right. So symbolically, they're filled to the brim. Eight, he said to them, the servants, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, there's an important distinction here because we now have a choice to make. Draw some out, okay? There's six stone water pots over here we could draw some out from, and there's a well over here that we could draw from. Which is it? The word draw always means to take from the source. Whenever it's used, it talks about the source. When the woman at the well, we'll read in John chapter 4, comes to draw water, she wants to draw from the source. So what it seems to be saying here is Jesus is saying, hey, fill it up, set it aside. The old, the old. You wouldn't go get drinking water from ceremonial water. You need something new. That's not working. They, they, they've run out. And, and so now it says, now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. So I think what they did is they went and drawed from the well the water. And as they took it to the master of the feast, it was turned into wine. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it come from, came from. In other words, the servants knew. They knew that that was set aside and that they had gone to the well and they had gone to the well to get an abundant, extravagant, unbelievable, never-ending supply, the total opposite of what the law, constant regulations, constant ceremonies, constant cleansing, constant sacrifice, no, now there's a new covenant that has arrived. And the Messiah, the one who brings the new covenant, he is coming. The old law, which was always trying to cleanse us from the outside, but never cleansing us deep down inside. Now there's the new, the new wine, and it will cleanse us from the inside to the outside, not from the outside to the inside. And so the servants knew who had drawn the water. They had gotten it from the well, and they took it to him. And the master of feasts called the bridegroom, and he said to them, I love the way the Living Bible says it. It, it makes it as a kind of a, a statement. This is good stuff. 
Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now I want you to imagine what Jesus is saying about himself and about the new covenant. He's the Messiah, and he brings the messianic kingdom, the promised fulfillment, the new covenant of Jeremiah, chapter 31, right? He's bringing that new covenant to bear. And what is he bringing? He's bringing an extravagant, abundant, overflowing, endless supply of what you and I need for our life with God. And he's setting aside the law that had been turned into legalism and duty. And he's bringing the new covenant. This, the first of his signs, revealing who he is, Jesus the Messiah, what he does. He brings the new covenant, an endless supply of what we need. And elicits a response. The first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in glory, in Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed. They got it, they understood what he was saying. And so, as I think about this this morning, I, I think of two really simple applications for us here that we think about this is Jesus has come to them. He, he's presenting himself as the Messiah. Incredible uh, imagery in, in the symbolism of the wedding, in the, the symbolism of the wine. And he, he's presenting himself as the one who, as he would say in the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to bring it to its desired end because I'm bringing the new covenant. I'm bringing something better, more extravagant, more lavish, more wonderful, more powerful. And that's, he's, he's saying, I, that's why I've come. That's who I am. And, and he's bringing with it the desire of a response. Do you recognize me? Are you willing, are you willing to begin to let the messianic kingdom the kingdom of God be established in your own heart. Will you invite me to rule and reign over your life? And so that's exactly what he's doing here. And I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, God doesn't do parlor tricks. The way we would say it today is God doesn't do magic shows. God has no desire. He's going to, as a matter of fact, rebuke in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels. He rebukes, rebukes people because they want signs. They want the miracles. They want the magic tricks. They want the wonder. And he's like, no. Jesus is like, no. That's not why I'm here. Every miracle that I do is going to say something about the God who has sent me, about me as his son who's arrived on this earth to bring his kingdom right here, and, and about you, and about the life you can have. That's what these signs are all about. Stop wanting magic tricks. Stop wanting parlor tricks. Stop wanting an emotional high. 
Look at what I'm doing. Look at who I am. Look at who sent me. Look at the life you could have in me, in Christ. And that's, Paul summed it all up. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. This is the arrival of the new. And so if you've already believed in Jesus, drink the good wine. Don't go back to the old way of your life. Don't go back to those stubborn patterns of sin. Don't go back. His spirit lives within you. Your sins have been forgiven. You now have the power and the presence of God alongside you so that you can live the life he's called you to and you can experience him in the way he designed you to be experiencing him. Not just his forgiveness, but freedom, joy, contentment. In the midst of a life and a world that's broken and busted and twisted. So drink the good wine. Symbolically, drink the good wine. And then symbolically, if you have no wine, if you're here this morning... And maybe you're a seeker, maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're just someone who hasn't yet chosen to trust God. I, I just, I want to encourage you to make a decision about Jesus, to believe in him, to stop believing in yourself. Hey, I'm here to tell you all of the self-help books in the world are not going to bring about the hope and forgiveness and change that you want you can try it over and over and over, but self-help books can't change a heart. Only Jesus can change hearts. Sex, money, and power cannot satisfy the longing that's deep in your heart. Only Jesus can. Trying to be good, trying to be better, trying harder can't cover your guilt. The Bible says you're out of wine. You can't do it on your own. You're bankrupt spiritually. And here's the sign. Here's the direction. Here he is. It's Jesus. And he's inviting you to drink of an endless supply of grace and truth that will go on forever and ever and ever and never run out. His spirit living within you will take his living word and teach you his will and his ways and then empower you to put it into practice day by day, moment by moment. Would you bow your heads? If you're here and you're empty this morning and, and you want a new life and you want to invite Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, I'm going to say a prayer and I just want to invite you to pray with me. And I want to remind you, saying a prayer does not save you. Putting your faith in Christ who can change water into wine Putting your faith in Jesus who can change your spiritually dead soul into spiritual life. Putting your faith into Jesus who can change you from a person ridden with guilt and shame to be full of peace and hope. Putting your faith in Jesus who can bring you new life. That's what changes you. That's what saves you, Jesus Christ does. And if that's the desire of your heart, then pray this prayer with me right now. Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross and you rose from the grave. 
I believe you are the Savior of the world. I want you to save me. I want you to forgive me. I want you to change me. I want to carry out your will, and I want to follow your ways as you describe in your word. Come into my life and take over. Rule and reign as my king. Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. Thanks for listening.